Hi Church, Heather here. It is wonderful to be with you today. We've been served so amazingly in this lockdown season through our spring scripture series, hearing fresh messages from fresh voices, then looking at the theology of suffering in joy in sorrow. And the last couple of weeks, James has brought our gaze back to Christ, the bridegroom, as we revisited the stories of Jesus walking on water and John the Baptist preparing the way. Today, as we get closer to our November 7 family meeting together, we turn our gaze from the bridegroom to the bride, the church. Rather than look at what the Bible has to say about the church, though, we're going to look at what the Bible has to say to the church. Now, for some, opening the Bible is a big enough step. And if you've never done that before, may I encourage you to do it today? Find one, open it, download the app, turn to a book called John. He knew Jesus better than anyone. And I think that you will find an adventure awaits. But if you've experienced the joy, the discovery of diving into the Bible's pages, then you've likely found familiar tales of Adam and Eve, Moses and Joshua in the front pages. You've likely highlighted the Psalms of David in the middle. Perhaps the pages at the back are your favourites, revealing the gospel story of Jesus, along with Paul's lengthy correspondence to the early church. But given the choice, a blank slate to read any of the words within, would you go all the way to the end? Past Paul, past Hebrews, past both Peters, all three Johns, hey Jude, and there it is, Revelation. Now, maybe you're different to me. Maybe end days literature full of hectic imagery is your jam. Well done you. But personally, I have often skipped, sidestepped, and just generally skirted around Revelation. So imagine my surprise recently when I felt God prompt me to turn to Revelation after I read John's Gospel. And I discovered a book that begins with practical and relevant lessons for the church today. If we were to take a general flyover view of Revelation and ask who wrote it, to whom, and why, the answer is pretty simple by John, for the church, because Jesus. And I don't know about you, but a direct and final message from Jesus' last surviving disciple, John, directly to the churches, direct from an encounter with Christ, probably has some direct application and direction for us today. In the opening lines of Revelation, John writes, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. That's a pretty direct invitation to hear and to heed. So let's do just that and let's journey through chapters 1, 2 and 3 of Revelation. Now at the time of Revelation, John was the last surviving disciple. He has been banished to the island of Patmos, but he is the apostolic grandfather of the early church. He knew all about the young Jesus of Matthew, Mark and Luke. 
he counted Jesus' half-brothers among his friends. Before his death, Jesus told John to look after his mother Mary as if she were his own. John was one of the first disciples Jesus called, became one of his closest companions and described in his own gospel account as the disciple whom Jesus loved. In John, we read of a Jesus who celebrates, jests, heals, weeps. John knew him better than anyone. He also knew Jesus crucified and raised to life. He attended his trial, watched his agonizing death, ran to the open tomb, saw him at live on at least five occasions before his ascension into heaven. No one knew the life and times of Jesus better than John. He was there. It was John who leaned back against Jesus at the Last Supper. Yet something was missing from John's view of Jesus. A final piece of the gospel message still needed to be heard and shared. And that is what Revelation is about. If Jesus remains a baby in a manger, which we're going to see a lot of as Christmas approaches, or a young rabbi carpenter wandering the Middle East, if he's only an unmoving figure on a crucifix or angelic-like in his resurrection, then something is missing from our view of Jesus too. He is incomplete, unfinished, too small, too contained, too simple. Because he is all these things, but he has also ascended into glory, victorious, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the Almighty, holy, holy, holy. He is enthroned on high. So when an old John saw that Jesus appear to him on Patmos, he did not shake the hand of an old friend or give him an awkward man hug. I fell at his feet as though dead, John says. Here is the completed picture of Christ. It says in Revelation 1, 13 to 16, he was like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when this Jesus told John to write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, John wrote. Jesus is very specific to John that this message is for the churches. He tells him not once, not twice, but nine times this is for the churches. He couldn't be clearer. So it's worth noting here who it's not for. It's not for nations and it's not for individuals. 
It's for the church. In Revelations chapters 2 and 3, Jesus addresses these seven churches, not in the plural, but in the singular. You, the church in Ephesus. You, the church in Philadelphia. You, church for the city. The Jesus of Revelation is not interested in a second coming to a large number of individuals. He is coming for a body. He loves the bride. They are to him a people for which he is preparing a city. This letter doesn't come at the best of times. It came at a time when John was exiled. All the early apostles had met untimely and gruesome deaths. The church was facing increased persecution and pressure to convert to emperor worship from without. This was the time of Emperor Nero. While corruption, immorality, idolatry and false teaching were starting to creep within the church. The bride was actually not looking too flash and the last surviving disciple was not getting any younger. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Jesus places such a high value on the church. And this is both sobering and empowering. This high view is sobering because the seven churches addressed in Revelation, they're pretty normal, pretty average. Each is facing its own struggles and trials. Jesus is really building this, yet it's also empowering because these churches are pretty normal, pretty average. They're each facing their own struggles and trials. Jesus is really building this. He sees them, he speaks to them, he has plans for them. And I hope that's sobering and empowering for us too as Church for the City. On paper, we're pretty normal, pretty average. We've been through some highs and some lows, but there is much more to give and much more to come. John's revelation is a glorious reminder. We do not worship baby Jesus. We are not led by Jesus, the man alone. We do not bask in the love of a lifeless Jesus on the cross. We worship and are led by and loved by a living, triumphant, enthroned Jesus who was, is, and will build his church. In Phil Moore's Straight to the Heart commentary on Revelation, a book which was significantly helpful in preparing this message, he points out that the Greek word thronos, from which we get the word throne, is used 15 times in the New Testament up until Revelation. It's present, but it's in the background. Yet it takes center stage in Revelation. The word throne is used 47 times. Fillmore says, again and again, John's vision picks up on the many Old Testament references to the throne of heaven. He tells us that one fact is central to the Christian worldview and to how Christians must live in AD history. God is on the throne. God is in control. God will prevail. A book by John for the church 
because Jesus is on the throne. When we gather and worship together as Church for the City, which we're going to get to do in person very, very soon, let that be the complete image of Christ we come to, that we see and savour, that we come to in prayer, in petition, in praise, and that we get lost in wonder too. So that's the context. And if you know anything about us Ryburns, we love context. But what about these seven churches in chapters two and three that are given direct messages that are still directly relevant for us today? Well, the first thing to note is they were pretty varied, varying in size, strength, location. They actually formed a neat triangle around the major cities of Asia at the time. They varied in temperature and temperament. As I said before, pretty normal, pretty average. It'd be like Jesus speaking to us today saying, say to the church in Manly, Chatswood, Runga, Castle Hill, Blacktown, Liverpool, Cronulla. Three things stood out to me as I read what Jesus brought to each of these seven churches. Firstly, coolness is not cool. Fake news is not new and faithfulness is timeless. I'd like to finish our time together by briefly looking at these before I hand over to you, the church, to discuss and debate what we can hear and heed from these chapters. So firstly, coolness is not cool. To the church in Ephesus, Jesus says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. To the church in Laodicea, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. Ugh, I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, side note, how you like your toast is a pretty personal thing. Some in my family, wait impatiently by the toaster to catch the bread as it pops before it's even landed. They have buttered it and are devouring it, hot and crunchy. Others within our family wait. They do a few jobs, make their morning coffee, then they return to the coast toaster to collect their cold but still crispy toast, just how they like it. But no one in our family likes cool toast the type that has sat on a plate all morning, avocado sinking in, or glued to the plate from honey that's moved from one side to the other. It's soggy, chewy, lukewarm. It's enough to make you gag. Now, both the first and final churches that Jesus addresses through John have the same problem. Their love of Christ has become lukewarm, leading to hollow, going through the motions faith, which is unacceptable to Jesus. He'd rather they were hot or even cold, but not this putrid temperedness. It is not only unacceptable, it actually makes him hurl. The literal translation for spit here is vomit. Heart correction, loving realignment through earnest repentance is required by both these churches. Despite their many good deeds as the church, 
they have been told. But this is not a callous scolding. Note what Jesus says to Laodicea, to those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. We too must be able to take rebuke and discipline in love and begin with a right open heart so our self-deluded best intentions don't come up tepid and empty. Coolness is not cool. Secondly, fake news is not new. The next three churches, Pergamon, Thyatira and Sardis, and by the way, sorry if I have been butchering these names all the way through, they face similar yet distinct concerns. They are being corrupted from within by false teaching, idolatry and immorality. And some remain faithful witnesses. They're doing more than they did at first in love and faith. They've got a good reputation, but bad seeds must be dealt with. The few are ruining it for the many. And to Jesus, this is unacceptable. In Pergamon, pagan teaching is beginning to be circulated in their community. In Thyatira, a false prophetess is among them. Meanwhile, in Sardis, their reputation is one of being alive, yet Jesus calls them dead. He has not found their deeds complete. Change a few names or circumstances here, and these tales could look very similar to headlines of fallen leaders, troubled churches, or misaligned ventures for the kingdom today. Like many, I've been following along to the podcast by Mike Cosper for Christianity Today, the rise and fall of Mars Hill. It chronicles the incredible growth and influence of this church in the early 2000s and how that success masked arguably unhealthy culture within that led to its downfall. They had a reputation for being alive, yet. And while it can be tempting to throw stones, let's be mindful of the glass house we live in. And as Jesus says to the Thyatiran church, I am he who searches hearts and minds. That's for him. Rather, it is for us, as John writes to Sardis, remember therefore what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. Let's glean the lessons of the early AD church in Revelations and by all means glean the lessons from podcasts like this one but be careful not to assume it's about them and not us. We are the church. We are just as susceptible to false teaching. We are not immune to idolatry. We have to hold on to what we have until Jesus comes. The false teaching of our day may appear different. It may come in a different medium, point us to a different lie but fake news is not new to Jesus. And while individual battles and skirmishes continue, let's take heart knowing the king is on his throne. And finally, faithfulness is timeless. It's nice to know that not all of these AD churches were actually wallowing without John's revelation. Two of the seven churches are commended by Jesus, yet they still had their own challenges. The church in Smyrma faced some of the starkest persecution of the day. The city was really closely aligned with Rome and they were being encouraged to enforce emperor worship. 
and they also had an actively hostile Jewish population. Yet while this church was in Jesus' words afflicted and in poverty, he reminded them, you are rich. He implores them, be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. The church in Philadelphia similarly had little strength left. They had kept the command to endure patiently. Jesus had placed before them an open door that no one could shut. He reminds them in the following verses, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. No one who is victorious, sorry, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. I will also write on them my new name. Names reveal so much. If you've ever had the privilege of bestowing a name on your child or even a pet, you will know that it comes with huge responsibility and trepidation. I mean, some kids go days without a name because their parents just can't decide. It's too much. Someone's name is a huge part of their identity. It reveals to us who they are and whose they are. Here Jesus is bestowing his name on his church. These are no faceless, nameless masses. They are his. We are his. Faithfulness is timeless and will have its eternal reward. Each message to each of the churches finishes with the exact same line. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In Revelation, John reminds the AD church and church for the city today that God's back is not turned. He is nearer and more invested than we realize. He is enthroned on high, but deeply involved and aware and interested in our life as the church. Chapter three finishes. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me, says Jesus. When we get the chance to gather together again soon as the church, let's not just know that, let's do something with that. Let's open the door. Let's invite him in. Let's eat with him and he with us. Let's hear and take to heart this direct invitation. As Church for the City, we want to hear the living word of God, not only from Jesus then, but from Jesus now. What is he saying to us? What does it look like to be a church for God's glory? What does it look like to be a church for each other? What does it look like to be a church for the city? We too want to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church and put it into practice. I'd love for us to do that now. And as I said before, this letter is not to individuals. 
it is to the church and we are the church. So don't be tempted to hang up now. Don't end this call. Don't think that your contribution to the conversation will be missed, will not be missed because it will be missed. I realised today I have been light on application and part of that is because I want us, the church, to address and confront this together. For us as a body, a bride, a people, a city, to hear and to heed and to apply together. I want us to ask what image of Jesus we relate to or emphasise. How can we be on our guard to today's false teachings, both within and without the church? What encouragements does the Spirit have for us from this passage and for the future? So after that, I also want us to make time to pray, to hear and to heed what he is saying to us today. So that it may be said, blessed is church for the city who hear and take to heart.